This show is proudly sponsored by Salamantech's point-of-sale devices and software. Tired of all the headaches dealing with cryptocurrency? You don't know what a private key is? You don't want to deal with exchanges? Well, if you're a business and you just want to run your business without thinking about cryptocurrency headaches, look no further than Salamantex. We provide point-of-sale software that allows you to get paid in fiat currency, that's euros, allowing your customers to pay in cryptocurrency, that's BTC, ETH, and a host of others. Dark Side of the Hoddle Moon proudly uses the audio services of Eye of the Sound. Beyond the amazing sound production, they've really been a sounding board, pun intended, for our show giving us great customer support and constructive criticism and feedback. So if you want a little bit more personalized attention you're not going to get from a bigger provider, check out iTheSound.com. All right, and we're back with another episode of Dark Side of the Hollow Moon, and I'm here back with Josh again. And Josh, we've got a new guest today. Are you excited? I am indeed very excited because uh, this guy has got a really interesting background. You've introduced me to him, and now let's introduce him to the world. So, without further ado, let's introduce let's, Manny. Yeah, Manny Ramey. Yeah. Uh, would you Hi like guys. to introduce yourself? Give sure, us a sure, brief sure. intro. Sure, no problem. So, my name's uh, Manny. I come from Venezuela. I'm living in Hong Kong right now. Uh, I came between Venezuela and Hong Kong. I was briefly in the U.S. I lived there for about uh, three years, right, between the ages of uh, 19 and uh, 22. And, uh, well, I, I think it's been an interesting time for me to be uh, when I was in Venezuela, when I was in the U.S. Uh, my time here in Hong Kong, I think interesting things have happened in my life when I was uh, in, in each of those places. I really started, uh, my work was, was when I came here to Hong Kong. So uh, I became first uh, started as an English teacher, uh, admittedly not my uh, mother tongue, but there was uh, a, a need. The economy here was booming back in those times. And Little by little, I started to get into the startup scene locally, um, started to copyright for other people, do branding, things like that, and got into different kinds of technology uh, startups, right? So that's basically what I do right now. I mostly, when I join a startup, I handle uh, the fundraising things leading to the fundraising part. Uh, the startups I have joined have altogether raised uh, $2.5 million, which is not a huge amount, but it's uh, it's been quite uh, good for my short career here in Hong Kong. Now I'm 31. Right. Okay, okay. Cool. Awesome. So yeah, been in Hong Kong since 22. 
No, no well, I, I came here in 2011, right? So right. between the time I left to the U.S., I returned briefly to Venezuela, which uh, was was also interesting in the sense that I was there as they were trying to launch some kind of street movement to to see if they could topple the regime that they have then. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot to get into here with uh, especially with Venezuela and Hong Kong. There's a lot happening politically, a lot happening with the economic system, and also a lot yeah. ha- happening with crypto. So um, I kind of like to go back to growing up in Venezuela. Can you yeah. talk about how it was when you were maybe younger, elementary school, and if it changed a lot in middle school and high school? Why you decided to leave? Was it because of um, Maduro and the president before him, or what yeah. led you to go to the U.S.? Sure, sure. So, well, uh, you know, most people may not be extremely f- familiar with this, but uh, Venezuela is quite close to the United States, at least from from uh, our popular imagination growing up in Venezuela. You know, you have uh, most of the population, I'd say three quarters of the Venezuelan population lives uh, in the coast of the Caribbean Sea. And whenever you have a major population center, there'd be an airport and you can reach uh, Miami or the south of Florida in about three and a half hours. Right. So when I was a, a, a child growing up, my parents were lawyers, both of them, mom and dad. And so I had a, a normal what you could call normal middle class perhaps upper middle class life you know i was sent to a a private school and in general i I was living in a country that uh whose main business uh was and still is uh, the export of of crude oil and so even though this is handled by the government you know i had uh friends neighbors uh that worked for the state oil company and they weren't oil engineers you know they were qualified people they were doing uh either managerial work or technical work and you know there was some effect of having that money that foreign currency those u.s dollars from the sale of oil pump constantly into the country and there were all sorts of industries light industries uh, say my own father uh, even though he was a lawyer, in fact, his family business was the light manufacturer of textiles, right? So they manufactured socks for gentlemen, and y- you could have your own versions, your own Venezuelan versions of, say, uh, Macy's or Nordstrom and these kinds of chains by local business people, right? So it was, uh, it, it, I would say, a good environment, right? Uh I, I couldn't in particular notice any difference between my lifestyle and, you know, say that of Miami, right? So uh, it took me maybe until I was 10 or 11 uh, to figure out my father told me that, that we're actually not American. Because that's what I thought that we were growing up, that no, we were from a different country called Venezuela. I just thought we were traveling to a different city in the same country, right? Just going to... Disney World or something like that. So, so to me, you know, I, I, I learned English in, in, in school, right? In private school, I was going or uh, had a keen focus on, on being bilingual. And 
you know, I, I just couldn't tell the difference, right? There's cars, there's airports, there's highways, there's all these things uh, working properly, right? This, the, the stores look similar. Things are yes. quite similar. So as a child, you didn't even notice the difference between Venezuela and, say, Miami. No, I, no, <laughs> you know, of course, I guess, you know, growing up, you, you start to, to, to realize there's actually a difference. But as a, as a young child, no, to me, you know, Miami was the place you landed before you got to Disney in Orlando, right? So that's just a that place was... where you spoke a little bit more English and a little less Spanish, but not much. <laughs> Perhaps not that much. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I've got a feeling now there was a turning point, though. So this seems like a happy story so far, but I think Correct. there's something obvious around the corner. So what's what's happening? What happens next? So so basically, you know, I I remember uh, quite quite fondly that I, I used to really enjoy, still more or less enjoy, but different kinds. But I used to really enjoy video games back then. To me, Nintendo was all the rage, right? So. As a young uh, kid, I would try to save some of, say, my lunch money or my, my allowance to, to see if I could buy, you know, a video game once and then, you know, every three months or four months, it'd be a big release and I try to buy one. So what I do is uh, go to the bank myself and exchange, say, about 100 of the Venezuelan currency units to get one U.S. dollar, right? And, you know, I wasn't even 10 or 11 when this started to get complicated, right? Like, I, I couldn't even at some point go to the bank. They closed the counter that was doing the exchange. So, you know, I, that's when I say more or less, I, I went to my, my parents and they told me, look, there's, you know, this is a new government policy. We have a new government. They, they just come in and they don't want people to to have access to us dollars and i just couldn't understand why you know as a child what couldn't you you know do whatever you want with did you need dollars to buy the video games did they not accept uh the venezuelan currency or no no that wasn't a problem i i i was just saving because i i knew i'd go you know we we traveled probably once a, a year around thanksgiving or or christmas okay like spending money when you're on vacation okay yeah 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 so you know that's that's when more or less the climate started changing politically i was uh about to go into secondary school was in those i don't know harry potter years where you're like you know 10 11 and your your life is is changing you being told you're you know you're now a wizard or whatever right so i was finding out I'm not I'm not a wizard but I am from Venezuela so my life is is going to be uh, very different than I thought it would be right and that's because you know we elected a, a socialist government right so uh, back in those days we actually didn't know we had elected a socialist government because uh, that uh, candidate his name is Hugo Chavez right who mm-hmm became president in, in 1998, the first time, and changed the Constitution in 1999. He was portraying himself as an anti-establishment type of guy. Basically, you know, the establishment is corrupt. Both uh, the right-wing party and the left-wing party are corrupt. They're essentially 
uh, a uni party and there's the deep state and everything, right? They're all very corrupt. Uh, so I'm just a populist. I'm just writing the populist sentiment and coming to power. And, you know, I'm not opposed to the market or whatever. Uh, I'm not opposed to any kind of thing. I just want to alleviate uh, poverty and I want to basically get rid of this corrupt class of politicians and apparatchiks and things like that that yeah. are causing the pain of the Venezuelan people, right? So I, I remember that time quite well because there was an Irish documentary about Hugo Chavez and they portrayed him like as a revolutionary, um, someone that was actually doing it for the people and um, came across quite well. But as we all know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And yes. I think that that's where, where it started to go wrong for Hugo Chavez and friends. Well, uh, that and, you know, just uh, rather more simply that the fact that he was lying, right? So it wasn't well known to the Venezuelan public, but uh, Hugo Chavez had, in fact, uh, been, you know, between his time, he, he started as a military officer, right? So he, he tried to coup the government. That is that he basically he led earlier, right? Yes, he led he led a minor sort of insurrection uh, against well uh, our version of the White House, right? So he took uh, I don't know a, a battalion, a company of of elite soldiers of of uh, paratroopers, and tried to assault uh, and, and basically you know kidnap or hold the president kidnapped at gunpoint so that he could you know uh, checkmate the whole government. And that didn't work out for him. Uh, he was arrested. He caused about 200 deaths between, you know, the security forces and civilians that were on the site. And he was sent to, to jail, right, uh, on a felony conviction. However, that, that he received not a presidential pardon, but rather a presidential amnesty. So back then in the constitution of our country, the president could absolve you completely of your crime, not just of the punishment, right? So he, he just became like a never convicted, right? His status became like that. So he could basically uh, run as a candidate for office, and, and he did. So in the time he was running, we didn't know it, it, uh, much in Venezuela, but it was not a secret that he had actually traveled to Havana and given speeches there. Uh, where he was very friendly with Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. He called it the island of happiness, right? And, and this came into some interviews in the Spanish-speaking world by perhaps uh, more astute journalists that, that wanted to question him. They didn't really have any, any disdain for the Venezuelan political class. They were indifferent to it, but they wanted to expose this guy as basically what he was, which... You know, was a as a you know left wing revolutionary, but that was trying to fly under the radar. And you know, we we fell for it. Unfortunately, I mean, not me. I was a child, but uh, you know, some of even my parents' friends, some people who were comfortably living in the middle class, they just wanted to have a protest vote and said said, you know, I'm gonna vote for this guy. This is my way of yeah. Yeah, but I, may, that's interesting that you say that because 
my impression from the U.S., maybe this is from hindsight, but that he was always promising free stuff like free education, free health care, free this, free that. Was that not what he was originally running on? Well, the thing is, you know, uh, it, it, we were following sort of the European social model uh, financed by oil. So we had free education. We had free health care. But uh, there was corruption, right? So some people may not have had access to those things. Or uh, what is even worse, some people did not qualify for access, say for you know, tertiary education, because there's limited places. So you put in place some semblance of meritocracy, and then some people cannot get to college, right? So, so then they complain. You know, everybody should go to college, right? That kind of stuff. Yeah. And also, too, you talked about how it's mainly financed with oil and they didn't really plan well because um, they were planning on the oil prices always being high. The oil prices went down. And in addition, because of mismanagement or corruption, yeah. the, production, the production of oil has gone down. So they're producing less and they're getting less for each barrel of oil. And right. that was maybe one reason. But can you talk, talk a little bit more about maybe that and the printing of money and how it really kind of started to go crazy in Venezuela. Sure. So so by the time that I say I first remember reading about some kind of inflation figure, uh, maybe I was 12 or 13, and the inflation had gone to about uh, 16%, right? So in, in, in some countries, I was we were told, you know, inflation just happened to be higher, like in Australia or New Zealand. And then sometimes that has to do with the level of, say, independence of the central bank, right? That's the, the common economic assumption that as the central bank is more and more independent, then their sole focus it becomes to control the price levels, uh, you know, appropriately provide some price stability so they, they do their job better. And, you know, the Venezuelan central bank was not, I guess, that independent. But um, what had happened, I guess, in Venezuela was that um, well, oil was not discovered, say, by ourselves, you know, by Venezuelans themselves. Uh, oil had been there in the country for some time, and it was the industrialization, rapid industrialization of the United States, which uh, basically increased the appetite for oil. And then when, you know... Uh, maybe between Americans and some Venezuelans found out that there was oil coming out of certain uh, places or wells in, in Venezuela. And they said, you know, these guys, you guys have oil, right? You don't need to be an agricultural country anymore. And this happened sometime in the, say, late 19, early 20th century that American firms came to Venezuela to basically help us uh, take the oil off and, and create an infrastructure for oil. So sometime later, this was nationalized and investments were put into this space by the states to basically transfer the technology or create our own technological capacity to, be, uh, you know, extract the oil and, and sell it internationally. And at some point later down the road, Venezuela helped found OPEC. So that now the, the, the whole government was always in the business of selling oil because they had joined an oil cartel. So that, you know, the foreign policy of the country, everything became geared towards, you know, what's the price of oil? How should we control our production to make sure that the coffers of the country 
are you know more or less stacked with enough uh, forex, enough reserves, enough etc., so that we don't have to tax our people that much, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was the, sort of the the guiding principle of you know the Venezuelan state and later democratized, right? The Venezuelan democracy. So back in those days, we we had near permanent low prices, right? Except for the wars uh, between the Arabs and the Israelis that, you know, caused the oil price to pump drastically uh, in the 70s and, and in the 60s, right? The Venezuelan oil industry always sold at low prices, even after OPEC, right? And we didn't have as much oil as Saudi Arabia, so we could, or, or, or we didn't have as little population as, say, Qatar or any of these countries. So we had to always do something more than sell oil. And, and, and what happened with the arrival of Chavez is that maybe a few factors came together and the oil price just went up considerably during his presidency through no fault of his own. And all of a sudden you have this new populist government that has essentially said we are we are not socialists and, and, and we want to diversify the economy and do all these things. And they are receiving four or five times the revenues that the Venezuelan government has become accustomed. And now they're saying, well, we, you know, actually, this is the way forward is socialism. Let's just reveal it to you. And the government can start financing all of these uh, programs, right? Which, you know, they weren't well audited or whatever they became essentially vote buying programs and hooked the people on this money that was as you said before you suggested of a temporary nature even if it was a stretch of five or six years eventually the price would come down again which it did you know because the the the, the buyers of oil around the world like the u.s they don't like high prices right yeah and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think he was, you know, you're getting uh, maybe food vouchers, like almost very cheap or almost free, like electricity, gasoline, and you name it. So can yeah. you kind of tell me, like, I think it was like kind of a death by a thousand cuts, but can you kind of tell me if you were still in Venezuela or maybe when you're living in the U.S., when you saw it really start to drastically go down, you know, you've told me the story about, oh, you can't exchange the money. There's bank problems. Mm -hmm. When did it really start to rapidly accelerate and get pretty bad in your opinion? Well, I, I was I was already here in Hong Kong and, and I'd say it's been the last three or four years when it started to get really extremely bad. But uh, however, you know. I was there in Venezuela. If, if Hugo Chavez came to power in 1998, I left in 2008. So I was there for about, you know, I, I, 10 years of the revolution, right? And in those first 10 years, uh, most notably what happened is a crime just went up considerably. Uh, you know, you could get mugged in broad daylight at gunpoint. Uh, they changed the gun laws of the country so i remember my my uncle he liked to carry and my dad he liked to carry as well and they you know had to leave their guns at home because you know it became illegal to have your gun in public even if you had a 
a, a permit to carry, it was just canceled, you know, one day by statute. So that became a problem because, you know, the, the, the criminals, they really didn't care about canceling the permit if they ever had a permit or whatever. And they would mug you in broad daylight if you lived in a nice neighborhood as, say, maybe there was a blind spot in your neighborhood's uh, roads or whatever, and they would wait you there. And, you know, you, you go there and, and there'd be a, a bunch of, a gang of strange men, and they would mug you, right? And because the police couldn't handle it, they started to kind of express mug people, you know? They try to mug you in as short time as they could and if you resisted they might shoot you just to make an example of you to terrorize people so that they could continue with this kind of gang violence right on repress so that that was something that drove me to leave the country but i mentioned as a child i changed 100 us you know 100 venezuelan currency units to get one us dollar so when i by the time i left the the us the exchange was now 2.3, 2.3 Venezuelan units to a U.S. dollar unit. And you say, well, that's some major appreciation. Uh, however, uh, what happened is that they changed the sort of scale of the currency and they removed three zeros, right? They divided by a thousand and said the, the Venezuelan, you know, Bolivar, which was the name of the, was going to become the strong Bolivar. You know, we're we're literally called it the Bolivar Fuerte, which in Spanish means the strong Bolivar. It's like you you replace your dollars with strong dollars, but they're actually weaker. You know, they're they're you're replacing them because they've weakened with. Yeah, this uh, we've seen this in other countries too. I think or maybe Zimbabwe, a few other countries. Let's just remove a bunch of the zeros. They think they're yes. a genius. Um, well, you, you know, when you're counting in quadrillions and things like that, then... So that 2.3 would have been 2,300 of the original Bolivars? Correct, correct. Because it's funny, I was, uh, before we got on here, I went on floatrates.com, and I guess these must be the strong Bolivars. I looked today, and the exchange rate is one U.S. dollar to about 23,700. No, no, they have been devaluated again. Just uh, I think less than two years ago, they removed four zeros, right? Oh, make, so they removed like seven zeros to in total. Correct, correct. So these are the these new ones are called the the, the super strong bolivars, the sovereigns, the the sovereign bolivars. So we're regaining our sovereignty by renaming the the currency unit. So these twenty three thousand needs, needs to go in this book. Yes. Correct. These, <laughs> these 23,000, I don't know what it would be, but it, it you need to add seven zeros to that. And then, well, 2. you know... 2.3 trillion bolivars or 230 billion original correct. bolivars. Yeah, that's insane. So, yeah, so we went in my lifetime, in my short lifetime, I mean, since I have consciousness, uh, from 100 to 2.3 trillion or whatever it is to a US dollar, right? So that's um, insane. Yes. 
You know, it's what's a little strange though is like um, I didn't know about the crime thing before. I kind of thought like sometimes you always hear like, "Oh, poverty leads to crime." I thought the crime really exploded, like you said, maybe like when it started getting bad in the last three, four, five years. But I yes. didn't know it was already bad then. Um, you know, well, this. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is funny. This is I was actually reading about this yesterday uh, because of the situation in Hong Kong. So so Samuel Huntington, very famous author, of Clash of Civilizations. Right. He wrote about political order that basically uh, democracy or any other political outcome is, in his view, not correlated at all with economic achievement. Right. And the yearning for democracy comes in a country that has usually achieved uh, a, a level of order, right? A level of order. That was his, his observation. So Venezuela had democratized because even though the military juntas of the 40s and the 50s, they had political prisoners they there were students that they didn't like sometimes they were left-wing students sometimes they were right-wing students and they beat them up and 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 put them in in detainment or prison in general there was no crime right there was order and and infrastructure was being built and things like that in the country so eventually the people said look we have all this order and we don't like the repression part of it so give us democracy and we'll have the same order but with elections right and that kind of thing however the the issue is whether to me the rule of law whether it comes from say a, a, a complex system that is balanced where the judiciary works out or you just have order because you have a strong executive and they're able to impose order Right. So, yeah, that was well, the I, case of Venezuela. I, would say, I think that's true. And I also think culture is important. I mean, um, yeah. when you were living in the US, I mean, you know, a lot of people in Europe like to say, like, oh, we're like this wild, wild west. Did you feel like the US was unsafe compared to Venezuela or other places in South or Central America? No, no, no. Not that I traveled actually much around uh, Latin America, but to me, I, I I never really felt unsafe in the U.S. I mean, more than Venezuela. Growing up in Venezuela, you have obviously expectations of, uh, you know, you should take care of yourself at night. Don't walk around the wrong neighborhood, that sort of stuff. But I never suffered personally an incident of crime or petty crime even in, in, in my time in the United States. Yeah, well, it's funny because... Uh... I used to live in Korea where Josh lives and I thought Korea was very safe, but it didn't honestly to me, it didn't feel much safer than where I'm originally from. But Mm. other people in Western countries where they don't have guns, they thought like, oh, wow, you know, like people from South Africa, like, wow, I can leave my door open. I can walk out at night and everything's okay." I'm like, that was me in the U.S. and everyone has guns. So I think it has to do a lot about with being able to protect yourself, the culture along with the socioeconomic situation, the political structure, it kind of all ties in together. Correct. I mean, obviously, I think when people start to experience crime, right, then they say, well, this, this, these guys came and, and, and they were, you know, five of them and they mugged me. So that perhaps is a 
much less scarier story that this guy came and held me at gunpoint to mug me, right? But the, the, the commonality is that you're experiencing crime and probably you're experiencing crime is because there's impunity, right? There's impunity. There's If everybody that commit a crime, whether with a gun or with a knife or, or you know, with their bodies, right, uh, from the gang, faced, you know, certain or near certain conviction, then there would not be that much crime. Yeah. And, um, and you, you kind of told me uh, a couple stories in private messages. Maybe you could share one here about sure. just give me an example of how crazy the inflation has been in the last few years, like how it, the, the prices change over the week or even maybe over a couple days. How um, it's not just 16% now, it's the uh, inflation rate's astronomical. So right now, essentially, the, the, what, what my parents tell me is that most people have given up and they're now using the U.S. currency, right? Even though it's, it's illegal, it's not authorized because it had become so much of a headache, right? You had something that you want, something that you need, perhaps uh, cooking oil, for example, you need it in your house and it's been three or four days since you haven't seen it at the store. And then you hear that there's been a shipment, so people go there, and the store itself is rationing it so that it doesn't have like a kind of uh, mob violence outside or some kind of altercation. So they want to create the semblance of order. So the store says, you know, you can come and you can buy one bottle of cooking oil, a small bottle. Everybody can do that today until supplies run out. And they would have to recalculate the price from the last time they had it. And it could be significantly different. It could have been 20% higher or 30% higher or double. And so that's that became the everyday reality of people in Venezuela sometime around last year. So that most of this year, 2019, they have been using hardback, greenback, you know, just U.S. dollars. The Benjamins. <laughs> Not many Benjamins, I take, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, the, the George Washingtons, the one dollar yes, bills. I don't, yes, I don't know if yes, they're yes. passing around a lot of the hundred dollar Benjamin bills. You no, got to no, Well, I was going to comment one thing. Really, it's clear that, of course, violent crime is terrible, but I think it's worse. You're getting robbed via inflation. It's much much worse than getting mugged. Really, I mean, the entire society is getting mugged. Of know? course, of got... course, of course. I mean, it it was uh, in some ways. When people say talk about I, I ran away from the violence of Venezuela, they they don't necessarily mean muggings or 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 beatings. It's more that you don't know what kind of criminal you're gonna face when he you know maybe he's high on drugs or maybe he's trying to show something to his buddies and then you're gonna lose your life, right? Uh, the murder rate in Venezuela is astronomical. They kill something like fifty thousand or 60,000 people in one weekend, right? So that is uh, insane oh. for a country of, of 30 million people. I think that's... Uh, it's worse than Iraq. It's I worse than I, Iraq at the height of the war. I, I could be okay. wrong, but th- but that in a week or a weekend, is like triple the murder rate, I think, in the U.S. for the entire year. I think, yes. no joke. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you have maybe 15,000 deaths 
a year. Yeah. All right. So uh, obviously, if the currency is going crazy like that, obviously it's not working. I've heard stories they're weighing the money. Now they're transitioning to greenbacks. And also, we we know each other through a crypto meetup. And mm-hmm. do you know anything about? I've heard they've been using Bitcoin Cash and Dash in Venezuela. Do you know anything well, about that? Well, some people will use it to save, right, as a store of value. And there are also all kinds of sort of businesses that have set up mostly to guarantee that people overseas, right, that, that have uh, jobs and whatnot, the Venezuelan diaspora, so would say, uh, can basically you can go online in this kind of uh, little Amazon and you can buy a month of groceries for your parents or your, your relatives that are there. And you, you can pay in cryptocurrency or you can pay in, in credit card, US dollars. They have international, say, point of sales and they deliver the goods to your door, right? That kind of services have popped up. Yeah, I also heard, I heard about that, but I also heard there's problems that people were stealing the packages in transit. Um, I read this interesting thing about Dash, and they're using it for cross-border payments in, I think, Colombia. And it's talking about how crossing the border with a lot of boulevard or U.S. dollars, it's theft-prone, it's dangerous. But if you're crossing yes. with Dash, it kind of solves those problems. They like, oh, give me your money. All you don't have anything except your Dash on your phone or in like a private key or something like that. So you can actually, yes. it's a safer way to go cross the border and get needed supplies and come back. Yes, for sure, for sure. I think uh, the young generation in particular, they are keen on you know, all the advantages of using technology for whether it's payments or protecting uh, their savings or or just transiting across across borders as you said yeah yeah and i i read another story on bitcoin.com where a venezuela pharmacy chain is accepting bitcoin cash dash die btc through mm. a point of sale and we know in, in in venezuela people need medicine and that's another use case where it's maybe solving a problem or a need in the venezuelan uh economy yeah, I mean, you have to recognize that maybe because you you guys haven't used the paper U.S. dollar in a long time for you know in a like a hundred percent of the economy has to run on that. That there are significant problems. Say in, in Venezuela, uh, because those U.S. dollars would have to be settled by some kind of aggregator that takes them to to Miami and and whatnot, some kind of market maker. People are very, uh, they're not very keen on accepting bills that are a little soiled or just a little crumply or whatever. So, you know, the bills that are in, in transit in Venezuela, they're very high quality, freshly printed U.S. dollar bills. And so it's, it's a problem when they, when they become soiled or crumpled, which, which happens all the time. What's, right? the, so, what's the issue with accepting a bill that's a little slightly crumpled? Yeah, there are well, a lot that, of, are there a lot of forgeries or fraud. N- uh, no, fakes? that, that you know, on? essentially you don't have. It's not legal tender in Venezuela. You cannot take it to your bank account and deposit it or whatever. So, uh, some guy at, at the end of the market, you know, some big market maker, he's gonna take these bills to to Miami, right? And and he's gonna deposit them there 
right? And then the bank's going to be like, oh, okay, all of these are U.S. dollars, right? But in the meantime, you know, people just don't know what, what, what they have is, is going to be accepted by the next guy or they've just been given the hot potato. So to, in order to protect themselves, they just not accept anything that's not mint, right? Okay, so, yeah, but I mean, if they don't accept the U.S. dollars, what are they going to accept? No, they accept U.S. dollars as long as they are, you know, they don't have any defects or whatever. If they don't okay. accept them in, on paper, right? But of course, a cryptocurrency doesn't have those issues. All right. So uh, it's funny in the U.K., um, a lot of people don't accept Scottish five pound notes. And they also don't like to accept 50 pound notes, even the, even the English 50 pound notes. It's bizarre. It's legal tender, of course, but lots of shops will just turn it away. So, yes, sure yes. I'm sure it's similar, but obviously not as bad as uh, well, in Venezuela. It's, it's a lot worse. Kind, yeah, people develop these phobias. Here in Hong Kong, there was for a time the $1,000 note was uh, suffering from you know significant uh, counterfeiting, and the like monetary authority just recommended that it not be accepted. And even though they fixed this and they've now issued a new series and all of these things, people still don't want to accept thousand dollar notes, you know, just in case they don't know how to tell them apart from a, a forgery and, and they'll be the ones that cannot take it to the bank and then, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, what you, you know, what you can't forge. What? Bitcoin and Bitcoin yeah. cash. Baby. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, I got a different uh, crypto story on Venezuela for you. I don't know if you heard this, Manny, but maybe you heard of the Petro and maybe you heard that Venezuela yes. has launched a cryptocurrency remittance platform and it's got full KYC. It's got withdrawal limits. I think it's capped at $600, but I think you need KYC even if you send $10. And it looks like you can receive remittances overseas by, from, I think, Bitcoin and Litecoin and a few other things. But it's mandatory that it has to be converted into sovereigns or the new Venezuelan Petro. What do, of you think, what do you think of this remittance exchange that charges maybe 15, 20% fees, has caps, KYC, and forces them to convert it into Petro? Do you think the Petro it, is going to be the ne next great big cryptocurrency? No, no, it's nonsense. It's all bullshit, right? So it, essentially, you, you have in, in, in many countries that have exchange controls, I think that it's so easy for them to create a fake economy, right? So basically, there's the, the real economy in, in exchange rate, and there's the economy for people that have only access to whatever's legal tender in that country, right? And usually those people will be basically the, the first ones to get cheated, the ones that don't have any access to... Uh, market rates, uh, say, reserve currencies, right? So say in, in, in mainland China, right, you could have the RMB, you're trading all your life in RMB, but you cannot take it out of the country, right? So you don't know if you were, if everybody in China was able to take all of their RMB out at the same time, 
would they be able to settle it in US dollars at the actual exchange rate? That that's doubtful, right? That's doubtful given uh, the, the sort of the difference in money supply that there is. So there is is an element of control, say in Venezuela, for the government to print their own currency. It's not just a matter of national pride or whatever. You know, they can pay themselves on the local currency and they themselves change it that very second to US dollars. And then they, you know, that the they whoever accepts Venezuelan currency, they are, you know, dealing with a hot potato. That thing could explode in their hands, you know, oh, in a hey, second. Manny, I got a I got a solution. I know how to fix it. All right. Yeah. So you said before they removed three zeros and then what was it, four zeros? Yes, yes. Uh, my solution for late 2019, they got to remove 10 zeros. They just got to step it up. <laughs> sure, sure, right. It's All right. funny, but it's also very sad, you know, because yes. people are getting, like, this, the whole society is getting robbed. Yeah, I mean, and, well, I mean, the violence, homicide rates and the crime and. It's yeah. all a consequence of desperation. It's terrible, to be yeah, honest. Well, I mean, um, I think, I think uh, I've never been there. I don't have friends or family there. But even me, I'm sad, and I think I deal with it through dark humor. But you know, you've got free yeah. healthcare, but there's no doctors, no electricity, no medicine. Uh, you know, there's he's Madero suggesting, oh, just grow rabbits, and then you'll solve the the starvation problem. You know, they're eating zoo animals. It's pretty crazy. So uh, yeah, it's really sad i mean i'm from the uk and we have an opposition leader called jeremy corbyn who like openly admired hugo chavez and thought that venezuela was a model to follow and i just can't believe that there are still people in you know the developed uh, western world that are entertaining the idea of socialism and seeing how bad and how far wrong it can go over and over again and Bernie Sanders was a fan of Chavez too. Um, Manny, would you consider yourself a Bernie bro? No, no, I don't like Mr. Sanders. Uh, um, uh, I don't vote in the in, in the U.S. election, but you know, it's n- not a big fan. Yeah. All right. So let's let's, <laughs> let's jump. There's, let's, there's let's an jump. interesting debate to be had about Bernie Sanders. A lot of people think, oh well, we need to we need to go to college. Everyone needs to go to college, right? But I think the free market debate on education is really the way that we should go about this because if you look at um, the cost of college, it's risen astronomically, and that's completely in line with the fact that the government is basically underwriting these loans, which are, which are debt that the, uh, the students are going to carry for the rest of their lives. They can't even get rid of the debt. Even if they go bankrupt, it doesn't count. They still have to yeah. pay this off. This is true indentured servitude in the 21st century. And Bernie's solution is say, all right, well, just make it free for everyone. Well, I think the right solution is just to let competition happen again because you've got things like um, online learning portals like Udemy, Udacity, LinkedIn Learning, Lynda.com. Make those sites as legit in the eyes of employers and the free market can step in and make education affordable again, rather than um, having this crazy system where everyone believes that getting a four-year degree in sociology is going to be the solution to your problems. It doesn't make any sense. Correct. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of places all over the world where 
higher education is free and still people from all over the world are coming to the U.S. for higher education. So I think that says something. All right. So uh, let's transition now um, to get off of Venezuela. And um, Manny, why don't you talk about moving to the U.S., um, what you did there and how you went from the U.S. to Hong Kong? Well, so as you were talking about uh, higher education, so I, I always thought uh, it would be great to go to America to study and hopefully uh, just migrate, right? Be able to stay there, maybe get a high-paying job or something like that. So, you know, I, I was actually a very good student, right? Uh, we, in Venezuela, have the Venezuelan national education system. That's all we have, right? We don't have a, a international baccalaureate or any of these things. Or it's not accepted that, say, the either the private schools or the public schools have another curriculum other than the Venezuelan national curriculum. So, uh, unfortunately, right, uh, the grades I had in school are not, say, comparable outside of Venezuela. But I myself. Um, participated in international chemistry olympiads, uh, which you know every every country in the world says, uh, sends a delegation to. I won a bronze medal at the you know chemistry olympiads for uh, Spain and Portugal and and Latin America. So uh, I thought you know all of these qualifications uh, prep me for say a, a good career. So originally. I, you know, didn't have money, say to, or my parents, you know, they, they, their savings had eroded in some way because they had put them in property, in local property, and that had tanked uh, instead of, say, keeping them in, in, in U.S. dollars or something like that. And so they said, well, we don't have enough cash to send you overseas. So I studied medicine locally in the, say, the, the Harvard of Venezuela, right? So I was... Uh, studying medicine there for about two years when uh, this just kind of fights with the National Guard, these protests that were, you know, constantly uh, fighting basically a repression machine of the state on the street near uh, every other month or whatever started happening so that class would get interrupted. And I said, I think, you know, if I combine this with the fact that and perhaps I chose medicine out of something other than, say, the vocation to be a doctor. I should consider making this uh, my move. So what I found out is that there's a very good system of, say, uh, community colleges and things like that in places like California. Maybe it's some legacy thing from when, you know, California was... Is the middle class state of the U.S. right? And uh, I had an uncle who lived there, so I I figured you know I'm gonna just enroll, and I can use that to transfer to say Berkeley eventually, which I thought would be a good deal for me. So I I, I did that. I arrived to a place in in Northern California called uh, Pleasant Hill. And it's a Pleasant Hill, Walnut Creek, uh, Concord. I think Tom Hanks is from around there or something like that. But it's it's a it's a smaller kind of conurbation 
uh, around 30 or, or 45 minutes east of, of San Francisco. And, you know, it was quite idyllic. I thought it was quite nice place uh, to be. Uh, so that, that's, that was like my reason to arrive in, in the States, right? To, to try to pursue a course of higher education, right? Yeah. And what made you decide yeah, to... Yeah, what made you leave, really? That's the surprising part. It Correct. It seems yeah. like it was the right move at the time. And yes, then you were so in the right course you did. You know, you were, you were at this college with the path to Berkeley. And then yes. you said you went, you did like three years, then went back to Venezuela. So what happened? So was it a girl? What, was it a romance? What was going on? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was secondary. I mean, there was something like that. But the, the truth of the matter <laughs> is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are studying in MIT at a, like a nuclear kind of physics. In the U.S., there's just no path for smart people to just go, even if they pay their own way, and they choose to stay afterwards. It's not possible, right? It's not part of the current legislation framework. I, I remember President Trump said that they should change this, you know, because they're just losing hundreds of thousands of very smart people. And I, I believe that it would be very sensitive to do so right now because, of course, American wages are depressed at the moment. So people might not be amenable to that kind of stuff. But the fact is that, you know, when you hear about the H-1B visas and that kind of stuff, that has to be sponsored, right, by a company. So if the H-1B visas right now are being sponsored by Huawei and Tata and these, like, you know, big Indian and Chinese companies, they're giving all of them to their own people. And, you know, individuals that themselves are motivated and maybe they feel that they align with the values of the U.S., not possible. Not possible to just go in a, to America, even as a young man, ch pursue a good course of studies there and stay. Yeah, it, it's tough because I know a lot of people that would, you know, would have done well and could do well in the U.S., you included. I think of a friend, she moved here from the Netherlands when she was 14 and she uh, had to, um, she went to university and she was going to get deported until she got, um, until she got married. She had to get married to stay. Uh, I have a friend, Steph, who, um, she is Korean. She went to boarding school here when she was 13 and let's just um, transition to a commercial break in a second because we need to let the audience know about our on upcoming sponsor. Yeah, right on. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Manny's back. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So we're going to just edit that bit. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I think Manny, uh, it's sad that you couldn't stay. And I actually know a lot of other people like you that would be a good fit in the U.S. My, <laughs> My my friend who moved to the Minnesota where I'm from when she was 13 and fluent in English and hard worker, she graduated college. She was going to get deported back to the Netherlands and she spent most of her you know teenage years and adult life here. And she actually got married and um, was married for quite a while. And she that's the way she um, ended up staying here. And my other friend Steph, 
she was Korean. She moved here when she was 13, went to a boarding school, went to university here and grad school here. And yeah, she couldn't, she didn't get any sponsorship. She moved back to Korea. So yeah. um, even places just across the border, I mean, the Canada has merit based immigration and now it's frustrating because the best people, they can't really do it like Trump says legally, but there's all these people that come here illegally and they're thriving. So it's a definitely a little frustrating for, I think, people that want to come here and for Americans that are here seeing how the immigration situation is happening. Yeah, and, and honestly, I, I, I don't personally think that they're thriving on, on their own. I, I remember, um, well, basically, I, I mentioned there was, there was the girl, and, and at some point, this girl, she had some, some trouble with her family, and, you know, she was considering her options, and I accompanied her to see, you know, this is a, a local American girl, uh, to see if she could, you know, receive some kind of assistance, uh, food stamps or whatever, you know, she was just going through a bad time. And in the food stamp office, I was like, wow. I mean, most of the people I speak Spanish, right? They were there. Uh, they were just there with a baby. like, And they, they were just in, speaking in Spanish the whole time. And, and it just seemed they were asking for food stamps through the baby and asking for all, all kinds of welfare through the newborn baby, which I just assumed was just born a few weeks ago so it had you know we were in northern california i'm assuming he wasn't you know just just arrived from from somewhere in in, in say mexico or central america right so so that that's a thing that i think takes on the on the finances i, I heard something recently that something like 20 percent of the budget of the state of california goes to financing services for people that you know are illegally in california right they have violated the the the, the law so i never violated any any immigration law i came here with a student visa I, I went to my interview at the embassy in caracas i you know the fbi checked me whatever uh sent my fingerprints all of these things right uh placed a bond Right. My family placed a bond uh, to make sure I had enough money that I could be returned. All of these uh, things that are in the law. But the point is that, say, student visas, even for high quality research institutions, are not a path to residency in the U.S. They, they are in some countries here in Hong Kong. If you graduate from one of the eight top schools i mean you know this place has seven million people so it's significantly smaller than the u.s but if you graduate from any of the eight top schools as long as you graduate with a full degree right and uh or or a, or a postgraduate course then you can sponsor yourself i mean you can stay and say you know let let me uh I don't need sponsorship. That's one way. Or the other is, you know, you just start a business and you sponsor yourself. So you can do one of those two things, but you still got to make it. That's the thing. There's no, there's no welfare. There's a concession the government makes, but you don't get a free house. You don't get a, you don't get a few free months of electricity. You know, you got to throughout this time, make sure you have a, a manner in which you can pay your way in this very expensive city. 
Yeah, I mean, Nick, uh, I know rent's not cheap there. And we talked uh, earlier in a private conversation and about immigration and U.S. immigration. And I think yeah. I mentioned I think I mentioned before, before the welfare state, 60 to 70 percent of immigrants to the U.S. self-deported because they couldn't make it or they didn't like it. But that simply yeah. doesn't happen anymore. Correct, correct. And uh, I mean, uh, I think I, I mentioned to you that it's a story on my family. That I, I have family from Italy that uh, one of my extended relatives had actually, uh, you know, they, they had gone to New York and one of my great aunts was born in New York. She's an American citizen. She just lives in Italy because that happened as a child and she had to go back. Her parents said, let's go back. We had enough. <laughs> and they they just went back to Italy, and then there was obviously the the Italian economic miracle, and they said, "Well, it's actually nice; we can stay here." Yeah, I, I'm curious. So, obviously, it wasn't working in the U.S. So, what was the process to um, move to Hong Kong and you know gain residency there, the ability to work there, get a job there? Because I think as an American, I always think like, oh, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Macau, Hong Kong, all these places are really hard for an American to move to and work in. Um, but what was your experience and how did that work out for you? Correct. So, so, so basically, um, I finished my, my course of studies in the U.S. in the community college level. I got an associate's degree in economics, right? And then I, I moved to go to university, right? So I applied to Berkeley, as I mentioned before, and to other schools in the University of California. And I was accepted, right, to, to continue my course of economics uh, at Davis, UC Davis in <clears throat> near Sacramento in Davis, right, California. So, uh, however, you know, you, you face a steep tuition hike and back then you know i had some relatives helping me pay for things and they decided to withdraw their support so okay you know that that was mainly the reason for me not to continue to to my, my studies right so i went back to my family with the associate's degree and said well maybe i should find uh, a way to continue my studies here. I mean, this, say, American experiment did not work out uh, for me. And, you know, I, it, it wasn't easy to see the change in my country in just three years, right? So uh, I, I, I felt that this idea that some people have in some countries that are to say like South Africa and they say well you know let me just wait a little bit to like I don't know finish my studies or settle this personal matter or save a little bit more money before I considered you know my options uh, getting out of this country you know you, you just have this feeling you're gonna run out of time right uh, much quicker you can say I don't know I can do two or three years top off and, and get the full bachelor's degree and then leave I have to leave now. And fortunately for me, I contacted UC Davis, which they knew that I was going to come and I didn't come for whatever reason. And I asked them if, you know, they could send me to a partner school or whatever. Uh, in fact, 
they felt pretty bad because they said they had some scholarship uh, money for for me. But, you know, the government of California had just gone bankrupt and they couldn't afford to give scholarships to anybody, much less uh, international student. And so, you know, they recommended me these universities uh, in Europe and in Asia that were partners, you know, that where they send people for exchanges for like a year or whatever without and counted their credits. They were confident, say, in their education. And I landed in this school in Hong Kong called uh, the Chinese University, right? So I, I came here. Uh, it wasn't easy. I wouldn't say it was super nice. Uh, they, they weren't used to sort of all, you know, people that had had a little bit more experience than just finishing high school and arriving at the university. They didn't know what to do with my transcripts or anything like that. So they just said, you go to business school and do year one, right? Start on year one. And I said, well, whatever, right? It's, uh, you know, four more years and, uh, I know when you graduate, you get the, the chance to stay here and live here. So I say, okay, it's not, it's not a terrible deal, right? And, you know, just go back and do it. But uh, it wasn't to be, right? It wasn't to be. Uh, I, I ran into all sorts of, like, wrong think problems at the university. They didn't like uh, that I criticized the way they operated the dorms and things like that. They, that I was throwing uh, too many parties. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you have to recognize I had already seen all of these subjects. So for me, you know, it was the, boring. The, 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 it was boring. So I was doing all sorts of other things. And uh, they, they basically accused me of corrupting the youth. It was kind of <laughs> like a, like an Aristotelian ty type of thing. You know, it, it was weird. You know, sometimes it's funny, like, a lot of Westerners think that these uh, very old and civilized Asian cultures like Japan and Korea, that they are open, that they're welcoming to everybody. And they, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's different because, you know, the West is, is literally open to anybody that's from Asia to come and join. Just learn the language a little bit. It's not like English is a difficult language to learn it's got like three verb conjugations uh, it, it's fine right but uh you try you try to do that in asia it doesn't matter you know in in china they call you a foreigner even if you have the passport you're a perpetual foreigner oh right? i mean yeah. in in korea they just say weigugen that means just foreigner that's very common but right. you, well you wouldn't be allowed throughout Asia, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't be allowed to say that in the U.S. But yeah, in Korea, it's normal. And I didn't take offense to it. But yeah, you're just right. not from there. In, and the same I, Thailand, like, I, I could live normal. in Korea for 15 years, speak fluent Korean, <laughs> and know all the customs. And I'd still be Weigugan. Yes. Yeah, correct. every day I hear that word, Weigugan. Oh, Weigugan in there. Hangul okay. So, yes, that's definitely true. Um, all right so so it wasn't meant to be oh, you were you were 
you were partying, you were drinking, uh, you know, I don't know what they drink in Hong Kong. It's not sake or soju. It's uh, maybe some Korean, Chinese spirit, some Hong Kong spirits. Yeah, you know, it's Japanese whiskey, probably. Nice. Scotch. Like James Scotch Bond. whiskey and also ales and pints. I mean, the influence in Brit, uh, of the Brits in Hong Kong is pretty strong. Yes, yes, that's true. I mean, you, most Hong Kong people at least say women here don't really drink. So that was part of why, you know, they were upset that I was throwing uh, a wet T-shirt contest, all kinds of things in university, right? That I was trying to have a, a, the best time I could. And, well, I mean, they, they more or less kind of forced me out. I found a, a job, luckily for me. So I was able to stay uh, with that. Uh, later, I just chose to not be on the job and start uh, my own company, which was something you could do here. And for the longest time, about two or three years, I was just traveling uh, and, and being here around eight months uh, of the year. And the rest of, of them was traveling uh, around Asia. And, well, basically, my, my business part of it was online. It was copywriting. So I was just, whenever I was not in Hong Kong, I would take a extended leave from, say, seeing my clients face to face. But I would still do projects for them. I would write copy for them. And when, when that kind of came to an end, it's because of my personal reasons. I, I, I got married, right? in 2015 and i got married to a uh, hong kong permanent resident so that allowed me to to basically uh, apply for the resident visa through my marriage right which in in hong kong is quite uh, good uh, in essence they say if you're married to a permanent resident that means to somebody that already has the right to work and what they call the right of abode, which is just basically the right to come back anytime, even if after an extended period overseas, then uh, they extend that to you. They ex Not the right of abode, you have to earn that, but they extend the right to work for you, which is great because you don't have a sponsor, right? So you're, you're not sort of beholden to whoever is kind enough to give you a job and give you a visa, you can just, you know, have labor mobility and or or step back and have a business and run that. So after that, you know, just my life's been settling in, in a sense. Uh, uh, I now have a son, right? He's two years old. He was born in, in 2017. So, you know, things have kind of come, come, calmed down from you know, all this trying to find a place that's not Venezuela to live, uh, hopefully at the yeah, moment. Yeah, that, that's a problem with rules. You know, you had obviously there's issues in Venezuela and the U.S. It's hard to do it legally. And it sounds like you've kind of settled in a good place in Hong Kong. Do you ever do the thought experiment? Do you ever imagine or think like, what would my life be like if I was still in Venezuela? Yeah, sometimes I do this experiment and I, I suspect for me, you know, I, I don't know if this is too much that I am I am breaking the rules of the game and putting some of the things I learned 
since my time in, in the States and Hong Kong back to this person that never left Venezuela. But I feel I would be some kind of, uh, you know, I'd just be in the mountains with some rifles and trying to, like, take over the government. Probably. Yeah. 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 You would be that or you would have just left a little bit later. Um, or or so- dead, you know, either because it's a very real possibility. If yeah. You, if, if you're a rebel, yeah. right? Hey, just be in the mountains with some rifles and listen to Madero and just grow some rabbits. You'll be okay. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. All right. So let's transition to recently what's happening. Uh, you know, I think with Venezuela, crazy things have been happening for so long. We've been desensitized to it. And things yeah. aren't quite as bad in Hong Kong, but things are starting to pick up steam. So let's talk about. Um, what really kicked off this latest protest, the I guess the extradition bill to China, and we've seen people getting beat by clubs, like these weird mysterious gangs, and the police um, spraying people with dye to mark them, and you know tracking people on Telegram with the internet. Can you kind of do a little deep dive into what's happening with the protests and how Hong Kong is trying to maintain? independence from mainland china correct so uh, basically that i think that's quite curious because uh you know i came here in 2011 and the feeling that i had was completely different uh than what it is today basically there was no talk of what the government in beijing wants or thinks uh it seemed like we enjoyed uh, full autonomy or near full autonomy. Of course, I, I'm a student of these things. I'm interested in these kind of things. So I had read that there had been sporadic episodes ever since the, the very beginning of, of the establishment of, of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, which is the name that this territory uh, had after what some call the handover. Yeah, from Britain to the People's Republic of China, what other people call, you know, the, the resumption of sovereignty, like the, 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 the Chinese nation is sovereign here, or and has, this has place has always been Chinese, is another way of thinking about it. But um, from the legal point of view, Hong Kong, a British colony, is 100 years older than the People's Republic of China, right? So when... Uh, Britain had a series of wars against China. China was then ruled by called the Qing Empire, and it was not a modern, right? It, it was uh, an autocracy by you know an emperor, the son of heaven. So essentially, fast forward, you know, hundred and fifty years, it gets handover, transferred back to China. And the funny thing here is that. People have a, a Chinese passport that's a different color, but says Hong Kong, but it has a completely different visa policy towards the rest of the world. You know, the Hong Kong passport is uh, one of the best passports around that allows you, you know, free travel to a lot of countries and allows you the right of a vote here in Hong Kong and also allows you to, say, choose to live in mainland China. However, in China, they have their own system of internal residency, the hukou system. So you cannot just go to a city and use their public hospitals or uh, have your children enroll in the public schools. They have migrant populations, big migrant populations of 
Chinese from other parts of the country in all their major cities, right? Uh, that don't have these rights, right? To, to really live and enjoy the full extent of uh, social and, and, and public benefits there. So Hong Kongers have this deal with China where, you know, as long as they don't have any say on foreign affairs or defense, they're allowed to rule Hong Kong by themselves, right? So in order to be part of the government or part of the political class here in Hong Kong, you have to have that black passport, that Hong Kong passport, which you can get only after, you know, migrating here legally, uh, following a kind of similar regime to say the H-1B visa or something like that in the U.S. and staying with the residents for seven years. So after you do that, if you are a Chinese citizen from the mainland, you can switch your hukou to basically Hong Kong and get the black passport and you lose your privileges that you had, say, in uh, Shanghai or Beijing or, or Guangzhou if, or whatever that be the case. So what's happened, I'd say, is, you know, basically that there was a change in the Chinese leadership in the year 2014. And the old president, uh, say, Hu Jintao, He came from a faction that had followed after Tiananmen massacre, right, in 1989 with uh, uh, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao, which essentially these people were kind of mild reformers. They had, they not themselves, but their, perhaps their parents, they had suffered under the Cultural Revolution in a way that not the same as the old Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping that came after Mao, where he himself was the subject of much abuse and whatever in the Red Guard, and he chose to open the Chinese economy. So this idea that I think I had when I came here was that China was a very reformist type of minded state, that they were just communist in name only. But I, through my studies, had seen that they kind of poked at the veil of Hong Kong's autonomy here and there with time. And since the arrival of, say, the new uh, general secretary of the Communist Party, which is uh, Xi Jinping, right, uh, then things have rapidly sort of started to change towards the erosion of autonomy here. And to, to give you a few examples of things that happened before this, uh, this current uh, debacle was that... Um, Through, through, before 1997, there was some kind of part of the agreement between Britain and, and China that actually got written in the Hong Kong Constitution saying that Hong Kong will be democratic eventually, right? And this level of how democratic should Hong Kong be should be decided by Hong Kongers, right? So in 1997, not everybody in Hong Kong supported democracy, right? Some people thought... Uh, You know, it's okay for business to have more control than regular people and, and things like that. But with time, it was supposed to be once Hong Kongers decide they want democracy, they're going to get democracy. And the Chinese government had created some kind of timeline. And they had said by 2017, right, you will first have the election of your former, what used to be the governor, is now called the chief executive, which is a kind of super mayor. 
right? It's a kind of split into a mayor and a governor, right? And uh, then you will elect what is called the legislative council, right? But you must have first uh, universal suffrage for the chief executive uh, before you can have it for the legislative council, right? And it came 2014, and they released some kind of paper that said, okay, here are the rules by which the chief executive will be elected. So they said, right now, it's selected by a 1,200-member committee. They said, well, this committee, we're going to turn it into some nomination committee. So instead of choosing the chief executive for you, it will screen whatever nominees you have to see if they love Hong Kong and to love the country, it means love China, right? So if, if these people love Hong Kong and love China, then they can be, uh, you know, they can stand for, for election and then the, the people will elect them, right? All the citizens of Hong Kong. So people took to the streets and said, this is fake democracy, fake elections. This is not, not genuine universal suffrage. And it was mostly young students and just sat on couple roads i'd say in hong kong that are yeah they're major roads but they're not let's say the highway or something like that and they sat there for 79 80 days something like that and it was you know quite peaceful demanding uh, genuine universal suffrage and whatnot since that which was called the uh, the umbrella movement or some people call it uh Occupy Central or, or wherever it is, there's been some instances of, you know, actual intrusion of, say, Beijing in local politics where they have disqualified people because they took the oath of office in a way that was seen as mocking China, right? Or uh, they said that these people were promoting independence, so they were disqualified from the legislature. So last thing that happened was of course the extradition bill uh where you know that is kind of the point of hong kong is that it has its separate legal system its separate set of rules enforced separately uh through a, a different kind of way of thinking which is the the english rule of law and well you know people were really really concerned about this and they took to the streets but because they have been repressed uh, so violently, now they have five demands, right? Uh, only one of which is to withdraw the extradition bill, right? And the others have to do with uh, basically setting up an independent uh, commission to inquire on how the police has been responding to these events as well as you know give amnesty to the people that have been arrested some of them have been charged with rioting which in hong kong comes from the colonial law books right so it's a it's kind of archaic type of law that says that if somebody's in the street committing violence and you are nearby on the same assembly you are riotously assembled so you're part of the riot and you will be punished likewise even if you haven't done any criminal damage or whatever, right? So that can set you, send you 10 years to jail in Hong Kong. People don't want, obviously, uh, young people that 
had been, say, blocking some roads or doing some other acts of defiance to you know, go to jail for 10 years for that, particularly when they feel the government didn't have the moral mandate to try to attempt some kind of reform. And they're now, also asking I have a question, Manny. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It's, in it, uh, it's about this podcast, actually. Will yes. you get potentially in any political trouble just for having this free speech out there on the internet? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't think that, uh, you know, that they might be like snooping on the English media to see uh, what uh, foreigners are saying. Like, luckily, it, it counts both ways, right? But they, they, they definitely, if you get a high enough profile, then you get in trouble. Like, uh, we have some student leaders, some uh local hong kong people that cannot travel to china they just they are stopped by the hong kong immigration from and they're told that they're on a no-fly list to go to china so it's it's like you guys couldn't go to new york or to dc right they couldn't board a plane yeah i think that's kind of one reason maybe you can elaborate on this on why hong kong is kind of fighting to keep this freedom or get some of the freedom that they've lost back is, you know, at least in Hong Kong, you kind of have a somewhat semi-free press. You have a little bit more freedom. You have that passport compared to China where there's a social credit score where like you're getting rated on everything and millions of people can't buy a high speed rail ticket or buy an airplane ticket or leave the country. And I think I think if one Hong Kongers see that, they're thinking, man, we've really got a good thing here and we got to maintain it or get it back to what it was before 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have to understand that Hong Kong is uh, 200 times smaller than the mainland in population. Right. So the the people of Hong Kong are, are really facing uh, a, a backlash that it would be like unimaginable to anybody else uh, trying to fight some what they perceive is, is a tyranny essentially in the mainland they are propagandizing to these uh, other 1.4 billion people that basically Hong Kongers are seditious that they don't love the country that they are trying to have a separatist movement and that they are basically engaging in terrorism and that kind of thing, uh, just for being on the streets opposed to the local government. In fact, you know, most protests and most anger in Hong Kong have been directed at the local government because just five years ago, there was this feeling of full autonomy here and also some feeling of responsibility, even though there was no democracy there was still rule of law and whenever a government um, uh, functionary or 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 cadre or whatever did something wrong and he was caught you'd expect him to quit and to go to a trial all of these things so and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore it seems like the order is quell these protests at any cost, maybe because there's something larger at play in, 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 in China as a whole with the trade war with the U.S. or whatever. 
but the order from above is stop these protests, right? By whatever means necessary, even if you have to go against the law and the common practice of how Hong Kong has dealt with these events in the past. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, China's not, um, has a history of doing this. Uh, Tiananmen Square is just one example. And they didn't just run over one guy with a tank. They, you know, from some reports, they murdered hundreds of thousands of people. They just uh, torched them all and washed them down the drains with a fire hose. So it wasn't just one guy with the tank. So they've done this before. Um, let's talk about a couple ways people are fighting back. Not not just um, the umbrella protests and the different protests, but um, using, uh, you know, secret decrypted messaging apps. And also what this show is about, which is uh, crypto and Prior to coming on, I was doing a little research today before we talked, and I was reading three, four weeks ago, the articles are like, wow, you know, there's not really much demand in Hong Kong for Bitcoin and crypto. Most people still don't know what it is. And I was reading two weeks ago from articles from two weeks ago, oh, demand is increasing. And now, like, articles from this week, it's like, wow, demand is demand is way up. And, like, I, ha- I have an article printed out here. And in Korea, there's a kimchi premium when things are going crazy. And yeah. Bitcoin was trading at a premium of 160 on top of Hong Kong Exchange Tidebit. And now there's a huge demand for maybe Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. And um, Bitcoin, it's actually it's banned in China, but it's not banned in Hong Kong. And right. um, they've actually been getting donations, too. And uh, I think this was translated from Chinese. We've seen a flurry of donations today. Help us pay for freelancer safety gear, overtime insurance. And they're using um, cryptocurrency and they're withdrawing hard cash from banks to circumvent this financial censorship. So maybe you can expand on that and maybe tell me what you know since you're actually in Hong Kong. Yes. So, well, basically... uh in Hong Kong, uh, this is an international financial center, right? Uh, they try to keep a lot of things regulated, just like in New York or in London. That's because, you know, that helps people that are already in the business to sort of jump in and, 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 and keep the competition out or whoever the new entrants, right? But uh, the regulations have moved uh, quite fast, so we have some kind of the amendments to the securities law that have allowed many crypto projects to be here. So we have crypto ATMs, we have all these kinds of things here in Hong Kong, and uh, I just bought some Bitcoin last week through the local bitcoins.com uh, thing that works very well. Uh, you can do it all on your phone in Hong Kong because... Uh, you can do a local bank transfer from your phone through an app like a, a bank like HSBC or Citibank would offer these apps. And, and the local system has for small amounts of money free transfers. So I think, you know, uh, th- this, the part that you mentioned about what technology the protesters are using to communicate. Right. And uh, my understanding is they have mostly been using Telegram. Right. No, actually, actually, I heard it. I actually just heard an update that actually Telegram got hacked and mm. they were able to track it. So so I have two stories to tell you about the chatting. So okay. one way they're getting around it is, you know, what the protesters were using to chat with. They were using Pokemon Go. Yes. yes and and they were also using Tinder. 
yes, to organize yes, protests. Yes. But actually, I just rent, printed out this new article from, uh, I think, Decrypt. Uh, <clears throat> and they said that in the last few weeks, Bridge, Bridgeify and FireChat, two peer-to-peer messaging apps, have really been blowing up. And it's a mesh network um, that uses mo- mobile phones via Bluetooth. So this allows them to send messages from phone to phone until they reach their destinations. So it's kind of like cryptocurrency. It's something that's decentralized and can't be tracked or can't really be stopped. So I think that's right. pretty interesting. So, so yeah, I, I read about that too. I, I must say that, however, I'm not participating in the, in the protest. Uh, first, because I'm a foreigner, right? And they already said that these protests are sponsored by the CIA and whatever so I have lots of friends who are supportive but they just cannot participate and second you know because it's a very high chance of uh, violence and arrest going on is the local young people facing these things mostly and everybody else that you know the Hong Kong society is very cohesive so they understand you have a child you have a wife you have all these things you know, you can help in some other way, help with your support. Uh, some people are sending money. Some people are giving them food or inviting them to meals at restaurants or just having giving donations for them to buy equipment, whether it is black shirts that they have to actually like throw on the streets uh, after they finish the protest. Because, you know, you can get stopped for just wearing black, right? And, 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 and check your bags and whatnot. Or the stuff that, you know, really is necessary and requires a bit more money, like the gas masks and things like that. I think, you know, here in Hong Kong, uh, people have been afraid of, say, cryptocurrency in some way. It's, you know, the volatility. The government has come out a few times and mentioned people that, you know, investment carries risks and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, some people, if they have serious money, they've been putting it on property, right? It's still a... Asian culture, and when they don't cannot afford Hong Kong property, they look for property in Bangkok, they look for property in Hanoi, or uh, even I've had reports of people in Hong Kong buying flats in Tokyo because it's, it's there, it's super cheap compared to here, which even though it's super expensive for, for the world, you know? Yeah, and I think um, yeah. whether there's outflows through buying real estate or through crypto. And actually, I, I think transfer-wise, they mentioned that since the protests have began, um, they're a firm that offers bank transfers with lower fees and are more mainstream banks, that yeah. a lot of capital has been fleeing Hong Kong since the protests began. So I think a lot of people want to get their money out, and they also maybe want to get themselves and their family out as well. Yes, this uh, reports about, say, migration agencies receiving increased requests. Uh, there's also reports from the media of other countries, say, the Singaporean media is particularly good, easy to follow since it's also in English. And they've received, you know, the, the counter reports that a lot of Hong Kongers are either moving money or themselves and their families uh, down there. So I, I think there's definitely some heightened concern there's hope of course that the protesters will succeed in major ways but there's also other concerns that that you know it's not just about the protests that there's something larger at play and that eventually how are the hong kong people going to fight uh, the 
Chinese Communist Party, unless right now there's this law in the U.S. Uh, that a lot of people here are placing some hopes in it passing, which is the Hong Kong uh, so what do you, human rights and democracy. What do you think is the end game? What's the end game, do you think, Manny? Do you think that this is going to end well? Do you think yeah. that... Uh, that the protesters are actually going to be successful. Yeah. Are, are you optimistic? Or do you think that the Chinese are going to just kind of delay? Because one of the things that they are planning to do, in my view, is just do a little bit of a delay and then just start again in a couple of years, The same, t go down the same line of what they've been doing. Eventually, the wave of the masses of uh, China's completely surrounded Hong Kong, essentially, and now they're completely integrated in terms of the big bridge that goes from Hong Kong straight to actually the mainland, like 55-kilometer bridge, which is pretty impressive feat of technology yeah. and infrastructure. Yeah. But I think that they've, they're just surrounding Hong Kong and overwhelming it. Eventually, a couple of years later, they'll resume these type of tactics, even if right now the protesters right. are successful. So I, what I do you think? think I think most people here, they say, well, we, we want the one country, two systems, which is the official name of the arrangement by which Hong Kong is allowed to have autonomy within the People's Republic. But um, I would say most people here are not pro-independence, right? They, they don't actually want independence, but they... There are other arrangements that just cannot be said in public right now, but the end game for them should be basically the demise of the Communist Party in China and the establishment of some uh, more uh, permanent kind of degree of autonomy, like a federation where Hong Kong is a federated state, but it has, you know, all these uh, autonomous uh, powers but granted constitutionally and, and it has its it, it really has a supreme court and that kind of stuff that they don't need to like second guess their decisions with any any power in in in, in beijing right so however you know that is part definitely of a larger kind of thing which is what's going to happen in china right and at the moment we see that the Chinese people are themselves worried about chaos, right? And their knee-jerk reaction might be to be very outwardly patriotic. However, uh, it's possible to me, I really believe that the Chinese economy is not really built on a very strong foundation. That I was here in 2015, the stock market in China fell 40%. This is 1929 levels of you know, stock market failure and nothing happened. It, it just vanished. The, the government made some diktats and they were able to rescue, rescue the Chinese. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what actually happened. How is it that the government ordered the, the hedge fund managers to be more patriotic and all of a sudden the stock market is rallying again? And it didn't happen immediately, by the way. It, it They had to wait about a year or something for it to recover. So no one really knows what happened. There are rumors that the unemployment in China is right now above 10%. In some places, 15%. Uh, we don't, I actually have the belief that the social credit system is actually just a way to explain 
the unemployment that's coming. They're going to say, oh, well, these people have been very naughty. And so they're unemployable, but the economy is still booming. You know, that's why we have this many people cannot participate in it because they've just been so naughty online or whatever. Uh, and all of these attempts at these kind of authoritarianism and surveillance and police state are actually to avoid the Chinese people from revolting, that the, the obsession with Taiwan. Yeah, I think I think I think that's a good point. And also, too, if Hong Kong is thriving, the Chinese people are going to wonder why is Hong Kong thriving and we're unemployed or we're making such low wages. And yeah, I mean, they're going to want to take over Hong Kong. They've been trying to get Taiwan back. And, um, and it's interesting, too, you mentioned this. Maybe a cu- couple points I want you to maybe touch on is. Why are the Hong Kong police acting, it seems like, the mainland Chinese police? And also, does Macau have any sort of special autonomy, or has that completely vanished already? Correct. So, well, I'd say to the first point, the Hong Kong police, right? So, um, the police here have a welfare fund, which is uh, like their... it's, it's a fund that's statutorily established to provide for their education and whatever. And this fund has, for the past three or four years, been getting millions of dollars in donations from basically the Hong Kong members of the National People's Congress, right? So they, they create a group called Friends of Hong Kong and they donate money to the, the cops in that way. And these welfare funds actually get distributed as cash handouts and that type of thing. So they have subverted the police organization because of poor oversight and poor laws in place uh, when it comes to the police. And and the police used to have this reverence in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong people really like the police because it's a very, very safe city. And however, there's been, you know, people saying it for some time that's, uh, just it's not the same as it, it, it was perhaps never as good since 1997. So that's one of the situations I, I think that is causing the the police to do it, uh, to behave in the way they have. There's other rumors that there's actually mainland cops infiltrated. And, you know, uh, that could be possible because of the, the police decided not to display their numbers after the second or third protest. And what is happening in Macau is that Macau has only 400 or 500,000 people to go to your second question. So their economy was never as good as Hong Kong. It was a bit chaotic. And they had, you know, mobs and stuff running some of the casinos. And in 1999, they transferred their sovereignty. The Communist Party came and kind of cleaned up their act a little and since then, they have really legalized gambling. It's become, in some aspects, bigger than Vegas, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was I was there, I think, before I met you in Hong Kong, and I had some fun times gambling. And even the low stakes were somewhat semi-high stakes, and it was fun. It was really funny being, like, the only, like, you know, non-Mandarin speakers in the casino, and they just gave us funny looks. Sure. We were playing, like, roulette or, or blackjack or whatever we were playing, but it was a lot of fun. And, and you go to Macau and you really don't hear that much Cantonese or Macanese or Portuguese. So they have also 
suffered from some population replacement. So a lot of people living in Macau right now, they are born in China after the Cultural Revolution. So they think slightly differently about yeah. these issues, right? Yeah, well, if the population changes, um, the mentality changes and the culture culture changes. Um, yeah. yeah, well, um, I think that was pretty interesting. Um you know, interesting, maybe a little, little sad, a little depressing, but um, hopefully, you know, there's a silver lining, whether that's you staying in Hong Kong or, or, or moving somewhere else. But um, I don't really have any other questions. I don't think Josh does. Do you want to leave us with any um, final comments or final thoughts you want to promote yourself? I don't know if you want to promote any businesses or startups you're doing right now. Well, I, I'm, I'm just about to join a, a crypto startup. I think you might hear about it sometime soon. It's a Holdex called Holdex.io. You can check it out if you have a crypto project and you'd like uh, some extra users or to connect with funding. That's essentially what the platform Holdex.io is for. Uh, is to connect uh, projects on Ethereum with more users and money, which is all quite important, of course, these days to take your project off the ground. But uh, I myself haven't uh, fully on onboarded on Holdex, right? It, it's something that, you know, perhaps was uh, not to be premature, but we, we might talk about it in, in a month or two. Um, yeah. But no, I'm happy, happy to have shared with you guys Thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions and for letting me be part of the show. Thank yeah, well, that's, honestly, that's, that's honestly Manny, I really enjoyed it. I wish we had longer, um, to tell you the truth, because your stories are pretty interesting. Um, yeah, that's great. Come on and tell us about Holdex when you're yeah. fully onboarded, and then we can do sure, another show. Sure. That would be yeah. awesome. I'll have, to sure. check, I'll have to check out this project because, Manny, as you know, I'm mucho loco about crypto. <laughs> yeah, so... I think we'll leave it there. Until next time, we'll see you guys on the dark side of the huddle moon. Thank you for joining us on Dark Side of the Hoddle Moon. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Also, be sure to join our Telegram group, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and follow us on BitChute and YouTube where you can find all the episodes as well as highlights from previous episodes. You can also visit us at darksideofthehodlemoon.com Hodlemoon